Our dear Heavenly Father, God, I just thank you so much for your word. I thank you that we have the ability to study it, and you've given us such a gift in communicating to us through your word, Lord. And I just thank you for the ladies that are here today. God, I just... Uh, I know their minds are busy and their lives are busy, and I just pray that you would declutter their minds of all the thoughts that are racing through them so that they can spend this next hour and a half, God, just focusing on your word and fellowshipping <coughs> around your word around the table, Lord. God, I pray that you would guide my words. I pray, God, that you would um, protect me from saying something I shouldn't. And, God, that you will just go before us in this study and draw us closer to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's dive right into Ruth. Um, I am taping this, so it will be on the Every Woman's Grace site probably by Wednesday if somebody's not here and they need to see it or if you ever have to miss and you need to listen to it. Um, first, we'll talk about the authorship of Ruth. Well, we don't know it, so we're not going to say a whole lot about it. Um, God's Word does not tell us who the author is. There's a lot of speculation. Some think Samuel. Uh, there's no evidence for that, though, so we just don't know. So it's not an issue. It's not important for us since God's Word didn't include. The date, uh, the opening of Ruth says that it's written in the days when the judge is judged. So I think it's safe to tie Ruth to the book right before it, which is Judges, and assume that Ruth was written somewhere between the death of Joshua and the crowning of King Saul. Probably happened during one of the chapter interludes of Judges. The place was Bethlehem. I think it's interesting, um, when I started reading Ruth again, as I knew we were going to be studying it, Bethlehem jumped out and I thought, you know, I'd kind of forgotten that Ruth happened in Bethlehem. We always think of Bethlehem in light of Christ's birth. But we don't realize that the book of Ruth is where God brings us the first glimmer of hope of the arrival of a king in David, but ultimately in our Messiah Christ. And that comes out of the book of Ruth. And that's very remarkable considering all of the moral decline and the spiritual decay of the people of Israel during this time. It just shows you that God is watching. His plan is unfolding and it doesn't matter what man is doing. God's plan and his will will occur and unfold. The purpose of Ruth is, Ruth is a testimony to the blessing of those who live in a faithful covenant relationship with God. Now another word for a faithful covenant relationship is hesed. And we'll talk about what Hesed is as we go through this study. It's also a testimony to God's provincial hand on the house of David and how he brings it about. Now to go back to the concept of Hesed really quickly. Hesed is very significant in scripture and you'll see it mentioned throughout the Old Testament. And what Hesed is, is it's God's steadfast love, his kindness, his loyalty, and mercy to his covenant people. Now, Hesed is something that God does for Israel, but it's also something that we can do. We can communicate Hesed, and we'll see that in the life of Ruth as she deals, as we understand her a little bit better as we get into the book. But we'll study what it means to live a life of Hesed, and we'll study that more as we get into the book. There are some themes to the book of Ruth. The first theme is the one that jumps out in the first seven verses, and that's the emptiness of Naomi. 
and it, the theme is the emptiness to the fullness and we'll see how although at the beginning Naomi is emptied of all of her resources in the end though she is brought fulfillment by a daughter-in-law who is <coughs> of greater value than seven sons redemption is also the theme redemption is very prominent in the book of Ruth Boaz serves as the most well-known example of the Redeemer as he's their kinsman Redeemer. And he marries Ruth and redeems the family's land and name. Now I don't think I'm doing a spoiler on that because I think we all pretty much know the, the story of Ruth. So those were not spoiler alerts. But this also foreshadows a greater theme of redemption in the coming of the Messiah and the restoration and the spiritual restoration of our hearts through Christ. Faith is also a theme that is talked about and shown in the book of Ruth. Um, in Naomi, we see here at the beginning, we see God in his kindness grow her faith. She knows Yahweh and she has elements of faith, but she's a little uh, misguided in her faith, in what she believes. But that also might come after spending years in a foreign land where she had no reinforcement to her faith. Ruth, her expression of faith is remarkable. At the very beginning here in chapter 1 next week, we'll study Ruth's declaration in 16 and 17. That stands out as astonishing from a woman of Moab who had no foundation in understanding Yahweh and his ways, and yet she displays a keen awareness that she must forsake her cultural ties and place herself under the sovereignty of God. She knows that. She loves Naomi, but if you look at these words that we'll study next week, her focus is Yahweh and her understanding of how important her relationship is with him as the true God. Ruth, as a Moabite, becomes a model for all of the non-Israelites from different backgrounds. She shows that if you choose to align yourself with the covenant God of Israel, with Yahweh, he will bless you. He will take you. And by blessing you, I don't mean he will pour out on you abundance of physical blessings. But I mean you will be rich spiritually. You will be blessed by being under his umbrella and the covenant God of Israel. So Ruth's story is going to illustrate how faith can bridge those cultural gaps. And we know that in the law that was given to Moses, they said, if there are foreigners that come in among you and they embrace Yahweh, they can be accepted among you. And Ruth is a portrayal of that. And she, she illustrates for us, that for us beautifully. So what insights do we see in the book of Ruth about God? Well, it shows us God's providential care in daily life. In the book of Ruth, you don't have any miraculous healings. You don't have any divine interruptions. There's no amazing battle or strategy that's played out in the book of Ruth. It's an ordinary family who seeks relief from a famine. And then they suffer tremendous loss. And loss is a part of daily living. And they're in a foreign land in the middle of loss. And Ruth shows us God's providence in caring for Naomi and Ruth through really difficult circumstances. And it also gives us, I think, a confidence to know that even in daily mundane life, God is leading in our lives. His hand is there. And so that's the comfort for us. It also reveals God's faithfulness in the middle of chaos. 
If you think about Ruth being written during a time that every man is doing what is right in his own eyes, because that's how Judges is summed up, God is faithful in spite of man. So when you think of the purpose of Ruth, it's to show God's faithfulness in daily living. God's plan will come about. Another theme is inclusivity and grace. Ruth's narrative shows a powerful, powerful testimony of God's desire to include all people. The gospel is not just for Israel. It's not just for the Jews. God came for the world. And Ruth epitomizes that. She's a Moab woman. She's not Jewish. And yet God chooses to use a woman from Moab who comes from the line of Lot, okay, to be part of the lineage of Christ. So if you think about it, Christ's fleshly body wasn't just Jewish. He had elements of Gentiles in his being. And to me, that was a sweet reminder that Christ died for the world. His body was the embodiment of Christ's love for the world. It wasn't just for the Jews and then the Gentiles get the crumbs. It was for the world. And Ruth shows us that. Now the next thing I want to cover with you, and I don't want this to become confusing, but I do think it's a huge part of Ruth, and after being in Japan, it really stuck out, and that's the impact of living in an honor-shame culture. So if you could take out your handouts for me real quick. I, again, I don't want, <laughs> James did such a beautiful job explaining this through five series of talks with us. And so I've condensed that down to five minutes. <laughs> so I, I showed it to him last night, and I said, he goes, well, you need to. And I'm like, honey, I have a second. <laughs> he said, okay, this is good then. <laughs> so, but I do think that what understanding the honor-shame culture does is it helps us see a new element to the book of Ruth. It doesn't undo what we've already believed, but it does enrich what we see in Scripture. We come from a guilt-innocent framework. And a lot of that is attributed to the teachings of Martin Luther and Augustine. They struggled a lot with guilt. How do you handle guilt? And from that came the righteous shall live by faith. And we are not guilty under the law. We're very aware of the law, right? And our guilt under the law. Well, in an honor-shame culture, you're not looking at guilt and innocent. You're looking at honor-shame. So what I want to do here is I'll read the definition of honor with you, and then we'll just talk briefly about it. Honor can be defined as an individual's value within society as assessed by the society itself. Possessing honor leads to others viewing you with esteem and desiring to be connected to you. Honor encompasses quality like gravitas and the ability to exert influence within a community. Interestingly, the Hebrew word for honor, kavod, also carries the connotation of weight. It's your importance. In various cultures, a common metonome is, for honor is face, in the phrase of saving face. In the Bible, the most prevalent term, for, term used for honor is translated as glory. And the verse that I'm using is Psalm 8, 5. It says, What is man that you take thought of him, and son of man that you care for him? Yet you made him a little lower than God, and you crowned him with glory or honor and majesty. So when we were created in the, the garden, 
we were given honor by God. We reflected His honor. He created us in honor. When sin came, we exchanged God's honor for shame. And so instead of saying sin in an honor-shame culture, it's honor versus shame versus guilt and innocence. So can you understand that's a little different way to think, but it's going to help us understand, especially Naomi and Ruth, in a lot better light. Shame can be seen as a person's value within society, but in a predominantly negative light. When you carry shame, others tend to regard you with disdain and may even attempt to isolate you. The honor-shame dynamic is fundamental communal. That means that it's relational and it functions exclusively within the context of a community. If the community experiences shame, it reflects on the individual within that community. Vice versa, if the individual experiences shame, the entire community becomes a part of that shared shame. And the verse I'm using is Job. When Job lost everything and became diseased, he was filled with disgrace. He was filled with shame, and he was rejected by his community. He was in an honor-shame culture where that disease came upon him, and they shamed him because of that. Job 19, Job says, My family is far from me. Serving girls count me as a stranger, and intimate friends abhor me. Even young children despise me. To be despised and rejected by a group is the manifestation of shame in a communal society. And we saw this in Japan. In Japan, you didn't see handicapped people. They were kept away. They were not out among the public. Everybody had a certain personification that they manifested. And you, it's a very disciplined, tailored society. They do everything right according to the Japan belief. Their religion is being Japanese along with Shintoism and Buddhism. But it's, very, it's a very controlled society. You don't shame someone. On Monday mornings when you're down in the subway, there's a, a Japanese phrase that comes across when a train is late. And it comes across when the train is late because of a suicide. Suicide is as common per capita in Japan as automobile vehicle accidents are here in the States. But on Monday mornings especially, going back to work, people will jump in front of a train and the train will be late and they'll have a phrase that comes across the speakers explaining why. But it's because of the weight of shame. And when you think about the honor-shame continuum in that society, your shame reflects on your family. Ultimately, how do you get rid of that shame? Well, if you don't have Christ and you don't understand that you were born in shame and apart from God there's no honor, then the next thing to do in a drastic measure would be to commit suicide because you've removed yourself. You've removed that shame. And so it's very common. Suicide is very common. And again, in light of Ruth, these concepts deepen how we see the book of Ruth. And the last one is collectivism. 
in an honor-shame culture, they prioritize collective identity over the individual identity. In these cultures, the actions of one person can significant influence, significantly influence the reputation and the honor of the entire family. Again, what you do <coughs> plays out for your family. If you are shamed, your family name is shamed. And that's a huge factor in an honor-shame culture. It's collective. You don't stand out by yourself. You impact your family, which is why there's such a desire to honor the elderly. In the church we were attending, they were having a day to honor the elderly. It was going to be on a Sunday. And, they were, and I thought, oh my goodness, have we ever had a day at our church to honor the elderly? I don't know that I've ever heard the idea of honoring the elderly. We have fun things for the elderly to do, but we never have a day set aside to honor them. And they had a Sunday set aside to honor the elderly, and I thought, wow, that's so cool. You know, um, it's just so respectful. There's a respect for the ways of your fathers, and that's part of the tradition of being Japanese. They continue that tradition, the ways of their fathers. They um, worship that. It's very much a part of them. And so keep this handout handy, as this is one of those things that um, if it helps you, great. If it helps deepen how you see Ruth, great. If I just totally confused you and muddied the waters, toss it out the window. <laughs> I don't want to do that, but I'm not, sometimes I don't explain it as well. I know it in here, but it doesn't come out quite as clearly. So hopefully that wasn't too muddied. Oh, I hate that thing. Okay, um, now we'll get into the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is um, structured like a play. It's got different acts. Each chapter is a different act. In our first chapter, we're going to see the backstory and we're going to witness the crisis and the narrator's interpretation of that situation. And then Ruth starts out by zooming in on a family named of Elimelech, his family. And this takes our focus away. If you come from Judges and you go to Ruth, Judges deals with a lot of what's going on in the tribes. It's very national. There's a lot of um, big issues going on in Judges. Uh, the individual stories that you see in Judges actually show and depict the heart of that tribe, the heart of the Israelites during that time. Whereas Ruth comes in and takes us to a single family. And so we'll go into the setting in verses 1 and 2, and I'll read that with you. Now it happened in the days when the judges judged that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the fields of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephratites in Bethlehem in Judea, or in Judah. Now they came to the fields of Moab and remained there. So the author, the narrator, opens up with a very staccato or bullet point message. He's giving us the facts of what's going on. So he's compressing a large number of years into a few verses in order so that we will know what the main problem is going to be, and that is going to be Naomi's emptiness. So it opens up when it happens in the day when the judges judge. Now the book of Judges describes the time under the rule of the judges. And during this time, Series of judges would be raised up by God and they would play pivotal roles in dealing with the nation's military and dealing with their, them spiritually. Um, as you saw in your handout, the cycle of judges happened from the sin. The people would sin, then they would, God would bring punishment in, they would cry out, God would 
save them from their, their punishers, usually another nation, God would free them, then they would have peace, then they would go back into their sin, and God, it was just a cycle. Their peace, their sin, God's judgment, God's forgiveness, when they cried out for forgiveness, it's a cycle that would go on in the book of Judges. You see some very tragic and disturbing things in Judges. Initially, I wanted to kind of spend a little bit more time doing, say, talking about that uh, because it really symbolizes the lay of the land for Ruth. But um, there's not going to be time. But just know that it, read through the book of Judges. Put it on your Audible and just listen to it for an hour and you'll hear the stories of the life of Israel in the book of Judges. Um, the very last verse of Judges sums up the people of Israel. It was Judges 21-25. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now in the first verse, the next thing we see is that famine strikes the land. We find ourselves in a specific period of Israel's history. Now the interesting thing about Ruth is you'll read these facts. There's no hint of judgment. There's no, there's no explanation for why the judgment, why the famine comes. Um, but what we do know though is that Israel was brought into the promised land. And when they were brought into the promised land, they had everything they needed in that land. It was plush. It was fertile. It was plentiful. They had cities that already had their walls built. They were just instructed to come in and take <coughs> what God had given them. But in Deuteronomy 28, we see that God had conditions. It's in Numbers also. Um, God said, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you do not obey me, you will come under punishment. You, if you disobey, there will be punishment. So it was with blessings, with obedience comes blessing, with disobedience comes curses. And one of the very obvious curses was famine. God would dry up the land so that it would not provide. And so I think it's very natural to assume that as Ruth opens up with a famine in the land, that the famine is coming from the hand of God and it's there because of their disobedience. And so I think that Israel is under disobedience and we know that there's a famine in the land and then the next part of the verse says, and a man from Bethlehem. Now Bethlehem means house of bread. It normally, it was a plentiful city. It had barley, wheat, olives, almonds, grapes, blue, grew plentifully in this city. But now this man from Bethlehem, the house of bread, is leaving the house of bread because it's empty. And the contrast here is that in Moab there's an, an absence of famine. So Moab must have had plenty because that's where Elimelech chooses to relocate. So this is the, the backdrop to Ruth's entrance, entrance into the story as a Moabite. God is taking Elimelech to Moab. So regardless of the rights or wrongs, understand Ruth is showing us that ordinary man in his sin is still being used by the hand of God. God's hand is much more powerful than our sin. His plan will not be diverted. And that's comforting. This also accentuates the bleak circumstances that Naomi will face at the end of this time. And the irony is that the house of bread failed to feed the family. So they left. Then verse 2 tells us their names. Elimelech means my God is king. Now in Israel your names meant something. They either spoke to the 
faith of the, the man giving the name, or it spoke to the faith of the person. But names meant something. So Elimelech means my God is king. And this resonates with the theme of Ruth. God will guide all of the events regardless of Elimelech and what happens with him. So Naomi means the pleasant one or lovely. And their children, Malon, means to be sterile or sickly, which what mother is going to look at their little baby? <laughs> you little sterile thing. <laughs> they, again, names meant things. So, and then Chilion meant annihilation. So, how's that for your son's names? And yet, doesn't that lay the framework for Ruth? The names play into the story of Ruth. They're from the tribe of Ephraim. And at this story, at this time in the story, Elimelech is the focus of attention. He's the one who takes the initiative and decides to leave Bethlehem. We have no rec or no account of Naomi's response or the son's response. We just know that Elimelech makes this decision and he goes with his family. Naomi and her sons are kind of tagalongs at this point. And you wonder about Elimelech's faith. The word sojourned, when they chose to sojourn, it basically means that initially the goal was to wait out the famine. It's a temporary sojourn. So potentially Elimelech's idea was to go to Moab and wait out the famine. Now some people have tried to liken uh, Elimelech's decision to Abraham and Isaac's decision to go to Egypt when they were wandering in the land but God had not given them that land. The only problem I have with that parallel, and they were saying, well, because it was okay for Abraham and Isaac to go to Egypt, it was okay for Elimelech to go to Moab. The only reason why I have a problem with that is that Abraham and Isaac hadn't been given the land yet. They'd been promised it, but they hadn't been given it. Elimelech was leaving the land they had been given that was to provide for them. So he was going outside of the protection of God by doing this. And I don't, the, the, Ruth doesn't tell us judgment statements, but I think there are facts we can put into Ruth that are biblically based that can help guide how we interpret the actions. But we also realize that Ruth is not written to condemn Elimelech. That's not the purpose. It's to show us that ordinary man, God's hand is stronger, his will and his plan will be carried out. And honestly, how many of us, if we were in a land of famine, might have been tempted to go to where it was plenty for a time and then to come back? I think what we see in Elimelech is our own heart decisions that we might make too. You know, how often do we compromise in our faith for an easier solution? I think it's a very natural thing that Elimelech did. It's very human. And it's something that we also would have probably been tempted to do. Now they came to the fields of Moab. They left the familiar to go to the unknown and the unfamiliar. Now Moab is a nation that could not have been an easy decision for Elimelech to make. There's several factors about Moab that I want us to consider. Moab came about because of the incestuous relationship that Lot had with his older daughter. And so Moab came out of sin. The Moabs were resistant to the Israelites as they were going to the land. The Moabs were not part of the land. They were not occupying the land. But Israel had to trek through Moab to get to the land. And the Moabites were very unhospitable to them. 
Deuteronomy 26, 3 through 6 recounts how they were excluded out of the assembly of the Lord because of their treatment for the Israelites. In Numbers 25, 1 through 9, we'll read about a time when a Moabite woman seduced the Israelites, and she was punished for that. The book of Judges, we'll see that for 18 years, the Moabites oppressed the Israelites. So Moab could not have been an easy choice to make, given who they were, and yet Elimelech chooses Moab for his destination. And then we have the tragedy in verses 3 through 5. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died, and the woman was left without her two children and her husband. So this was a play. We've now hit the first major crisis, or the second. First one was Elimelech's death or the first major crisis, sorry, I'm getting ahead of my thoughts. Elimelech died. And the author is very abrupt in announcing, we don't know how long they'd been in the land with Elimelech, we have no idea. But once they got to the land, at some period, Elimelech dies. There's no explanation of the circumstances, no accounting for the time that's passed through. During, for the family during that time, we just know that he passes away. As a reader, we're left with a lot of questions. Why did a God allow this man to die? Was this because of sin? Is his death a punishment? What were the circumstances of his death? We don't know any of those details. And so we can't say why God took Elimelech. We just know God took Elimelech. Only God knows what happened. But we do know now that there's a shift in how the text is writing. Elimelech is now seen as Naomi's husband. And that's a role reversal. In those days, in, back in the Old Testament, you did not see a woman put in that position of prominence. Naomi becomes the focus. It's a very highly unusual way of addressing a woman as saying she is, he is her husband. And Naomi now takes the focus, and she's left with two sons. Naomi, whose name was Pleasant One, is now a widow living in a foreign country with no means of providing for her children pleasant as anything but her situation right now. She has no family. She has no connection. Do you think the Moabites liked that they came? I don't know that they really appreciated this family from Israel coming to their land. Daniel Block points out that the verb here for the choice left indicates bereavement, but it also refers to those who have survived the wrath and the judgment of God. And so being left seems to have a shadow of judgment over it that I think we can stand on biblically. God had given them the promised land. He had promised blessings, and yet they had left that promised land. And now Elimelech dies. There's hope in the future, though, in the next verse. In verse 4, it says, Both sons marry. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. Now, the marriage of her sons is another interesting thing to consider. The author is silent on whether this is good or bad, but they were commanded to not marry foreign wives. Why? Because they would bring their gods with them, and the Moabites had the god of Chemosh, and Chemosh was a wicked god, and that's who they worshipped. And so marrying Moabite women brought in the contamination and the pull of these gods into the marriages. 
Now the verb took Moabite wives actually doesn't signify an idea of marrying, even though we label it as marriage. It's the same verb that's used in the case of abductions. In Judges 21 verse 23, it talks about marriage by abduction, where the men would take wives from the women and make them their wives. So it wasn't a marriage coming together after agreement. It was a marriage of, I need these women, I'm going to take them. And so there is not a marriage that's talked about here. Rather, it's they took the wives. And again, this is equivalent to when they married outside of their family, outside of their community, their country, outside of Israel, when they took foreign wives. It's always said that they took the foreign wives versus they were married to them. There's no explicit prohibition, prohibition, I'll get it, for the Israelites to marry the Moabite women. And one thing I want you to understand is the Israelites were forbidden from marrying women who were from the nations in the land. When they came into Canaan to take Canaan, God said, do not marry any of these women from these nations because you are to drive them out. So the Israelites were forbidden from marrying those women. Moab was outside of the land. It was, he was, Moab was not part of the promised land. So it wasn't strictly prohibited, but was it wise, knowing what we know about what God has said? But again, the narrator expresses no approval or disapproval through all of this. So we have to be careful. We can come up with our thoughts on the wiser way to have walked, but that's not the point of this book. It's not the point of the message that the author is trying to get along to us. So um, <clears throat> we know that God had prohibited marrying wives of foreign countries, and yet from this the purposes of Ruth come about. And so again, showing us that even when our lives get messy because of the sin in our lives, God's hand will not be stopped. His plan will be accomplished. I wonder, Naomi probably embraced these marriages because it meant the possibility of heirs. It meant company for her. It meant provision for her. It meant establishment for her. So I imagine, even though it's not mentioned, I imagine Naomi probably embraced these wives. It brought security and probably gave her a little bit more honor to have them in her home. Verse 4, the women that they married, Orpah, her name is Stubborn. And yes, Oprah was named after Orpah, but they misspelled it. And so it's <laughs> Oprah. <laughs> uh, Ruth, the name means friendship. And what we know is that they lived in the land about 10 years. Now that's not an incidental number. The fact that they stayed in the ten, land 10 years shows that there was no plan to return. There was no plan on the horizon. After Elimelech died, there was no plan to return home. Um, Naomi didn't seek to return home to find wives for her sons. She had settled in the land. And there was, um, for 10 years, they were in the land, more and more entrenched in Moab. And then the second tragedy strikes, uh, both Malon and Chilion die. Now Naomi is left childless. She's a widow. 
Now, interestingly enough, there's no, no mention of, to the impact on the Ruth and Orpah to the death of their husbands. Naomi is the sole focus of this passage. And he never, the author doesn't deviate from that. The news is given again very abruptly, very bullet point, they died. We don't know what happened, we don't know why. Um, we do know that, know that apart from a miraculous intervention, the line of Elimelech is now gone because both of his son died, sons died and neither one of them had children. In Israel, there was no greater shame than for a family line to cease to exist. The narrator underscores the devastation of Naomi's situation when he says the, the woman was bereft of both of her children and her husband. Naomi's loss is total. Her fate is indeed bitter. She's a widow who lacks provision and protection from a husband in a very male-dominated society. Her age and her poverty probably seal off any options that she might have. First option might have been returning to her parents, but her parents are probably dead, so that's not an option for her. She has no trade to fall back on. She's an aged widow. She faces declining years with no children to care for her and no grandchildren to cheer her spirits. This is a horrible fate of shame for an Israelite woman. So the narrator sets the gloomy and hopeless scene. You have a lonely, elderly widow driven from her homeland by famine, bereaved by death, and she sits abandoned in a foreign land. And that's the condition of Naomi. Israel's family unit of Elimelech is on the brink of extinction. And unless there's a miraculous intervention, Naomi is in dire straits. So then we have in verse 6 and 7 the decision to return. Then she arose with her daughter-in-laws and returned to the fields of Moab, returned from the fields of Moab, for she had heard that in the fields of Moab that Yahweh had visited his people to give them food. So she went forth from the place where she was and her two daughter-in-laws with her, and they went on the way to, the re to return to the land of Judah. Again, Naomi is still center stage. Her daughter-in-laws are still taglongs in the wings. Naomi, they face a very intensified crisis. They're facing this intensified crisis. They are all without men, and they have no future. But then Naomi hears in the fields of Moab that Yahweh has visited his people to give them food. So apparently Naomi had some kind of contact with Bethlehem, and she heard this, and it's honestly, it's a gift from the Lord that she was able to hear this in the midst of her grief and despair. So Naomi had heard that God had intervened on behalf of his people, that he had visited his people. To inter that means to intervene on behalf of or to come to the aid of. And the word for his people is ammo. It's speaking about his precious people, the nation of Israel. So this term expresses the covenant relationship between God. He had visited his people. Again, the author has no reference to whether his people had repented or been sought forgiveness from God, but the fact that God now was blessing their land with food, I think if God is consistent with his word, and we know he is, that we would assume that Israel now has returned back to God. It's even one of those cycles, but this is the cycle where Israel has returned back to God and God has lifted the famine and is now blessing the land. The return of the rain signifies that God has not forgotten or rejected them. 
God has given his people bread and Bethlehem, the house of bread, now has been restocked. The sign of the food is a gift to them and it's a sign of God's grace to a people that don't deserve it. But then again, neither do we. And we've seen in Naomi's response, she hears those words. She understands who Yahweh is. I think she knows the significance of it. It ha- She has a faith that is at least present. And when she hears that God has visited his people, it sparks a glimmer of hope for the future. And she prepares to go back. The hand of God is at work, and he's bringing Naomi back. So she and Orpah and Ruth get up to go back. She is. She rose. She returned from the territory of Moab, and she went out from the place where she was saying. So verse 7 leaves us with this trio of women headed back to the land of Judah. Again, the focus is just on Naomi. Next week, we'll get where the focus is branches out a little bit more to Naomi and Ruth. But what I want to encourage you from this passage of Scripture is just taking it and understanding how much that shows our hearts. How often do we long for greener pasture and we might compromise our faith for it? How often do we see hardship as punishment from the hand of God when in fact it's God's plan for our life and he's with us every step of the way he's not striking us down as we tend to think it is and as we'll see next week Naomi's response that's not who God is he is there with us his plan is unfolding and even when hardship comes we can trust that God is with us and he will strengthen us and he will provide for us and he will fortify us during those times. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, God, I just thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for this beautiful story of Ruth and how here in the beginning, Lord, we can relate to the decisions that were made. God, your word doesn't shine condemnation and judgment in this story. It shines on you even though you're not mentioned here, God. It shines on your providence and your protection and how, God, even in our human decisions, your hand will lead us and guide us, God, and your plan will unfold. God, I thank you for the comfort that that brings to know that I can't stop your plan. I can't mess up your will. Lord, I just thank you that you are sovereign And that in your providence, God, you can orchestrate all things to bring about your will. I thank you for this book of Ruth, Lord. How beautiful it is to see uh, what you are doing in this small family in the midst of devastation and loss. And yet knowing the rest of the story, Lord, we know the hope and the, the honor that you bring back to this family. And how beautiful it is to see that restoration and redemption. God, thank you. Thank you for your word. I pray now that you'd be with the ladies as they spend time around the table just talking about your word and discussing your word and its impact on their lives. God, please don't let your word uh, return void. Help it to stick in our minds, to change our hearts, to change our lives, God. Your your word is the breath of, of life, Lord. Just thank you for that, God. 
Thank you for all that you've done. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.